Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg. I launched Tech on Reg to create thought-provoking conversations about our rapidly changing world. Together, we tackle the most pressing issues facing us today, particularly in technology, law, and disruptive industries. And I promised to create a forum that made diversity, equity, and inclusion a priority, not an afterthought, an actual central part of the conversation. And that means, to me, creating space to share knowledge, pain, and history in a way that paves a path towards growth and learning. I've been incredibly thankful to have the opportunity to speak with brilliant people from diverse backgrounds from around the world. And today's show is another step in that direction. The deaths of George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, and Breonna Taylor have sparked action and a reckoning with history and institutionalized racism in the United States. From economic inequality to criminal justice to education, the events of the past few months and, as everyone knows, the subsequent responses remind us that there is much work to be done. Technology and dedicated founders like today's guest play a vitally important role. To help me have this important conversation, joining me today as a guest host is former Tech on Reg guest and executive director of FinTechs, Randy Rivera. And today, Randy and I will be talking to Daniel Rogers, founder of Chicago FinTech AM Money, a FinTech student loan company established to leverage technology in order to address some of the systematic and institutionalized financial challenges that students of color face in pursuit of higher education. Welcome to the show, Daniel. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And Randy, welcome back. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. And then also FinTechs back on the show. I thought I am always uh, nervous if I'll get invited back to the house. So it's really nice when it does happen. Yes. Frequently returning guest, uh, Tech on Reg is a big ally of FinTechs as an organization. We really love the work that the organization does in Chicago, the Midwest, really around the world. So, Randy, I want to I want to let you as our guest because that's what polite hosts do. They, you know, they turn the they turn the floor over to their guest to start the conversation off with Daniel. Thank you, thank you very much. And to give some context and just uh, about this conversation, I was sharing with Dara. FinTech has been we've been pretty active over the course of the last several months during the pandemic in terms of providing content for our members and opportunities to create community, engage in dialogue. Um, and share learnings in virtual environments. And so I had envisioned this opportunity to really kind of shine a light, which is what we do in general as an organization, on a lot of the great work that's being done locally in Chicago. And uh, I've known Daniel now for a few years. Actually, the world got real small once we started realizing we had a lot of mutual friends. So it's always nice when that happens. Uh, But I've gained a lot of respect for him. We've done a few events in the past. And uh, in light of what we're dealing with right now, I just thought it really relevant to loop them in. You know, Daniel's company is focused on the space that is near and dear to my heart. Son of two Dominican immigrant parents. The college application process was new to our family. But more importantly, the college financing process was one that I did learn as I went along. Um, Made mistakes, didn't ask questions I should have. But I think that looking back on it, 
a lot of it had to do with just the system that was in place. So in speaking to Daniel, I just thought that the timing was really helpful. Broadly, uh, my daughter is right now in the middle of the application process. So it's uh, the pain points are real um, in terms of learning how to navigate through and what to provide. How does money play into decisions? Um, these are real issues that I'm dealing with. But on a and, that's, societal, and that's for someone who's had experience doing it. Yeah, exactly. For me, it's overwhelming. And But uh, as a societal and, and, and a, American economy, I picked up this stat today. And with, uh, I'll read the stat off and then I'll re- kind of use it to tee off the conversation with Daniel. In 1968, a typical middle class Black household had $6,674 in wealth compared to $70,000, $70,786 for the typical middle class white household, according to data from the Historical Survey of Consumer Finances that has been adjusted for inflation. In 2016, the typical middle-class black household had $13,024 in wealth versus $149,703 for the median white household, an even larger gap in percentage terms. So uh, understanding the education levels are really directly correlated with the income that an individual earns over the course of his life. I couldn't think of both because of the importance of what education means to people, but also where we are in today's environment around creating a bridge for all communities have access that I couldn't think of somebody better to kick off a conversation. So, so Daniel, I'd love if you could, cause I think that this your your founder story is a great one, but your personal story is, I would call it honestly inspiring. So could you just share a little bit with us? Sure. No, absolutely. And I guess to kind of start, you know, to respond to that stat really, like I'm of the age where I'm probably in the last cohort of people in America that can get into the middle class without necessarily having to go to college, right? And like, like, like I think the big thing that's kind of changed from, you know, the first year of that stat to today is that predominantly we know that like a lot of the middle and upper class jobs have a college education as a prerequisite for doing so. And like, you know, for me, that kind of hits home because like I... I'm a person who couldn't afford to go to college out of high school. You know, I, I I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I went to public schools. You know, I've been like working full time since I was 14 years old. You know, like I was working a night shift at UPS at 16 and like, you know, taking a bus, you know, an hour and a half each way to make nine bucks an hour. And of course, that had an influence on my ability to do well in high school. And so I wasn't able to, you know, get into a good school off the bat. And I certainly couldn't have afforded to go absent of a scholarship, which I frankly wasn't getting. So I did what a lot of people in America are forced to do is that I, like I worked my way through college and in particular, I actually joined the army as a way to do so. And so I enlisted at 17, shipped off the basic training in August of 2001. And was on active duty for four and a half years. And while I was on active duty, I actually did two years of college. And like I, I started out taking some courses on the weekend, you know, like on my time off, and then even did online courses while deployed to Iraq in 2004, like as a way to kind of stay on track to graduate from college. And so I had to go through a lot just to kind of get from point A to point B. And like, like you know, I've done some other impressive things, but like a big part of the story is just that experience of like having to juggle the necessity of paying the bills with the kind of hope and the aspirations to go to college and do something else with my life. I understand that. I mean, it's, it's it, again, a lot, August of 2001, right before 9-11. I mean, I can't imagine what that was like. 
But now take us towards today. So today you run a company. Obviously, there's a lot in between, but I'm sure that that experience did a lot to prepare you for the, the challenges of entrepreneurship, right? Everybody thinks it's an easy, easy ride, but how did that all inform your and energize you to think, build, help build AI money? Yeah, no. So, so I like to say that I'm building a company that I wish it existed when I was going to college, right? And the short version of that story and how it all kind of played out was, you know, like I, I left the army and I transferred to a four-year college in DC. American University. And, and, and I had a really great plan. I had mapped out all of my expenses. But what I didn't realize is that the school had front-loaded all of my institutional student aid into my first quarter. So while everything was taken care of in the first quarter, for the second, I was told, well, now you got to come up like, like with an extra $16,000 or you're going to have to drop out. You know, And so I was taken aback by that because I wasn't expecting it at all, despite all the work I had done to kind of prepare for things. And I had to figure out how to come up with that. And so in my case, my mom was bankrupt, like officially in bankruptcy and couldn't co-sign on a loan of any sort, including loans from the government. She surely couldn't go into a bank and co-sign. And so I had to talk my grandmother into allowing me to co-sign on the loan. Right. And like that took me like three weeks of controlling. And like, you know, oftentimes the driving in against the company is thinking about how I felt at that moment in time and what that meant. Right. Because I had done all these things. Right. Like I, in theory, had done everything that anyone could have asked me and it could be argued even more. And it didn't matter because I couldn't pay tuition. Right. I just couldn't write the check to kind of go through, you know. And fortunately, I was able to go to Sally May, I believe it was. And get a loan for 15%. And I, I just think about like, you know, one, what would have happened if I couldn't have gotten that loan, right? You know, like, what does that mean for me? And like, I'm a very arrogant person. Like, I might tell you I would have worked it out. But the reality is, is that I graduated from college at 25, right? So everything else that happens looks a little bit different. That application of business school looks different if I graduated at 29 versus 25, right? Two, you know, I think about how ridiculous it was that I couldn't get any money to go to school, right? Because clearly I was smart enough, you know, had the grades, had the test scores, had all that stuff. Clearly I took it seriously, right? Like I was taking online courses in Fallujah, right? Like during the siege, right? So clearly I wasn't taking my education lightly. And, you know, I used to think all it would take is like five minutes to look at who I was and what I was doing and what I had done. And you would know that I was going to go and do other things, you know, and that's exactly what happened. But no company had that insight and no company cared to do anything for that. And so I had a company to do that. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting, interesting way to say it, to, to say, I wanted this company, I wish it would have existed when I was in school. That's a really awesome as a founder. You know, I think all of us try to figure when we're thinking about work, I mean, we always talk as adults, you know, I use adults term lightly, but places you want to work, a place you love. But the reality is it's truthfully, we, we didn't see those when we were in school. So Daniel, tell me why, what makes AM money sort of that unique solution for the challenges? Why do you wish that option existed when you were in school? I want to get into like the guts of what your business does. So it's two key things about our product, which I think are novel on the market. Right. So, and in some respects, it's on the front end and on the back. Right. So, on the front end, in terms of our underwriting, what we don't do is look at a credit score. Right. Because, like, if you unpack what is a credit score, 
it simply says, well, if you've paid your past bills, then I'm fully confident that you can pay your future bills. And that's obviously works, right? But it's like, it's incomplete, right? And like where it's incomplete are for people who just haven't had the opportunity to get there, right? And college is a perfect example, right? And so what we do is like, we look at other factors that basically paint the same picture, right? But is not actual like a credit score, right? And so like what we do in terms of our underwriting is look at the progress and performance of the student, right? And like, you know, I take it back to my story, right? And like, you know, like I say these things about how it wasn't rocket science to see that I took my coursework seriously and I was doing well enough to be successful, right? And so quantitatively, what you have is a lot of research out there that helps us understand who's on track to graduate from college, what are the outcomes of certain colleges? Like, you know, what sort of careers can people go to? How does that look like over time? You know, how does that look like in recessions, obviously? And we use that to inform our models because at the end of the day, when I was looking for that loan, you know, my income from the military was about $15,000, right? And so no banker in their right mind would have given me a loan for $16,000 because clearly I didn't make enough to pay it back, right? But on the day I graduated from college, I had a job that paid me $80,000, Right. And so simply what we do is ask ourselves, it's like, what's the most appropriate input, the $15,000 or the 80, right? right? And we aren't guessing at 80. We, we know all that information. That's what we do. So a question for you here on particularly on that point in, in terms of how you built the company, Daniel. So one of your co-founders is from another local fintech lender, uh, Innova. And what I'm curious about is, so you understood the problem um, in a unique way because you, because of your experience, but how did you socialize the idea of building this business with other people? Because obviously, it's a very technology is a key component of it. You need different skill sets to build a company like this. Can you speak about that a little bit? It's a good question. And I would say in my experience, the key has always been to keep it simple in terms that other people understand, right? Because when I first started to dig into it and first started to kind of talk about the problem and how to think about it. Like I would overcomplicate it and talk about like, you know, this data set with, you know, 5,000 pieces of information. But the problem was, is that people still just in some respects have to believe with what you're selling. Right. And the, the problem with what we're selling is that we're saying that there are other black people like me from the South side of Chicago who don't have great credit scores, don't have a lot of income, but might in the future. Right. And you have to make that as simple as people understand and be very clear and articulate around the parameters in which that is true and it's not. And so a big part of those conversations was helping people understand how to even think about the problem in the first place. And then the other thing that I was curious about is as you looked at funding your company, obviously every founder is tied to this company emotionally. There's, there's, you've been a part of designing it, but how did that affect your story in terms of how, did that affect how, who you were going to go ask for money? And if yes, how, and if not, why not? Yeah. Like, so it was like, it was a journey, right? It's certainly not easy to raise money for what we're trying to do. You know, oftentimes, like, as I said, because of the priors that people had, right. And so, there was certainly a lot of work that I had to do to understand the problem and to be able to talk about it like, like in a way that people would understand, right? But I also had to spend a lot of time trying to figure out who are the people who are inclined to listen to what I was saying, right? Because 
what I've learned is that, you know, on the surface, there should be a lot of opportunities for this and that reason as to why a person would want to invest in a company like ours. But it all falls apart if they don't actually believe what you're saying. Yeah. Dara, I'd love to get your thoughts here. I feel like you've represented some lenders in the past, and particularly when it comes to lenders in the student space. To say it politely, not everybody is, a, is your friend. So can you maybe give us your insight on, on that? Sure. So obviously, while not being able to disclose attorney-client privileged information about the work that I've done, you know, I've done enough work with consumer credit products in general, interacted with sort of our government agencies on a high level. And, you know, Daniel, I wanted to sort of throw out a statistic for you and sort of get your reaction to it because much of the work and and I did a lot I did a fair amount of investigation work and I've and I've done work for both for-profit and not-for-profit institutions of higher education and they each have their own right everyone's got their own problems their own their own pimples so there's obviously a growing body uh, of research that demonstrates pretty startling inequality in the debt burdens that are carried between sort of the Black, Latino, and Native American student populations versus white and Asian students. And at least in all the research that I've done, that's sort of the two buckets that, you know, the Brookings Institute and sort of other think tanks have have focused on and and grouping students in that way. And a 2018 study uh, in the Journal of Sociology of Race and Ethnicity found that 15 years post-graduation, Black students held an average of 186% more debt than white students. That was 15 years after graduation. In 2016, a Brookings Institute report found that, on average, Black students owed $7,400 more than white students, and that figure multiplied over time with Black students holding nearly twice as much debt as white students after four years of graduation. So those numbers are exponentially increasing, and anyone who you know can can do the math knows that that's not a result of the principal, right? That's That's a result of pretty obnoxious interest rates. And I think that at that four-year statistics, over half of those balances actually were interest. And according to Brookings, 48% of Black graduates experience that exact sort of debt trajectory. Now, there's a lot of reasons and a lot of factors that sort of go into why those numbers look the way they do. The predatory practices is certainly, you know, one of those factors. And my question to you is, is one... Are those statistics sort of in line with what you understand sort of the the state of the world to be when it comes to financing higher education? And then sort of, do you think that it is a result of those predatory practices? And I'm curious as to your, I, I have my thoughts as a legal professional, but I'm really curious as to your thoughts about why the so-called like rules and regulations and and laws that were put in place to prevent that just are not working. Sure. Clearly, the, I mean, the numbers are the numbers. Yeah. Well, I, in all of this stuff, of course, it's like incredibly complicated, right? But to the question of does that track with my understanding, like the answer is absolutely, right? And there are, of course, a lot of things that go into that, you know, like a couple in brief are, you know, one of the biggest risk factors for student debt is people who graduate versus people who don't, right? And like intuitively, that makes sense in that. When you graduate from college, that opens up a wealth of opportunities that when you don't go to college, you don't have. And so if you drop out, no one cares if you did 119 out of 120 credits, you're still a college dropout until you graduate from college, right? 
to, you know, in any financial service, we have a very long and storied history of discriminatory practice as it pertains to servicing and for how things are administered, right? And like what we know is that in home loans, personal loans, credit cards, payday loans, and everything that if I call up a company and say, my name is like Lavoid Robinson versus Katie Smith, the way in which I'm treated is different. And that has a tangible impact on like loan performance, default rates, loan accrual and the likes. And that is certainly very, very true in student loans. But unfortunately, that's oftentimes like not taken as a given because of the role that the government plays in these things, right? And so I would say is that as a person who's working in the space, like you have to be critic, like acutely aware of these things and you have to understand what is happening, why it's happening, and you have to be very intentional about how you approach them, lest you kind of recreate the same problems like as you're doing it, right? And like you so, ask- so on that point, Dan, Daniel, because I think that that's kind of where I get the I guess this is complicated, but maybe you can help us understand because that's if I'm a student of color and I hear these stats, it's scary. Why should I? Like, why go to school? Yeah. I, well, so the short answer to that question is because whatever we think about it, right? And people think a lot of things, myself included, is that college is the most effective and consistent way for a person who doesn't come from much to get into the middle and upper class, right? There are certainly counterexamples like, you know, obviously people disagree if that should be the case, but that is the case, right? And so for a lot of people, the prospects of doing anything else that they want to do in the world is predicated on going to college. And, you know, the question was asked around like for like, you know, predatory practices, that's what they're preying upon, right? Like they're preying upon the fact that people have to go to college to be able to take the next step up on that ladder. So how does your tool help solve that problem while equipping students with enough information they can one finish? I think that's one of the things I'm hearing loud and clear, you got to finish, but then also make other smart economic decisions or decisions about money? So a big part of what we've done as a company and as an organization is that we've taken certain views that other people in the market don't take, right? So as a very specific example is that we don't work with for-profit institutions, right? Because of their historical practice of being predatory towards certain populations of students, right? And we see that in historical loan default levels and the like. And, you know, ultimately we know that there's always the other side of the story, right? And that like, of course, there are people who go to for-profit institutions who use that as a mechanism for success, but in aggregate, that's not the case and we don't necessarily play into it. And so a big part of what we do is think about the ways in which we can design our products and services to not fall into that trap of feeling compelled to do something, even though we know it's a bad idea. So I just, I want to jump in for a second because we're all, myself included, are sort of maybe guilty a little bit of painting with a broad brush the entire for-profit educational system. Not every for-profit school is Corinthian, right? There's lots of, you know, trade schools and vocational institutions that are trying to do right by students and doing it the right way and don't intentionally go out and design predatory loan products. So I just kind of want to state out that. However... However, there has been enough highly visible and public information and data, consent decrees, actions by the federal government, 
a la the Corinthian colleges of the world that demonstrate exactly what we're talking about. But I did just sort of want to mention because, you know, everyone isn't good and everyone isn't bad. (laughs) I agree with that, right? And I would hate to discount the good work that people do, right? However, like I do think it's critically important to understand that someone has to draw a line somewhere. And 100%, yeah. I think the problems that kind of guide the structural issues with the student lending market in higher education is that people aren't willing to draw those lines, right? And so it's hard and I get that and I'm always happy to have the conversation, but a big part of it is not enabling people to continue to take advantage of the situation simply because I'm too afraid to draw that line. And Daniel, I guess one of the questions that people always fear to ask is, is this a program that what you're building, is this a program solely for the wealthy? I mean, in the idea, let me kind of frame that question a little bit better. A lot of these loan programs that are out there and student lenders will say that they want to, they're equal opportunity lenders, but the reality is oh, they're just carving a niche in the market that is like the creme de la creme. And I guess... Lending has been around for a while. How can you lend to a market that historically hasn't been lent to without taking on more risk? Well, I might push on the premise that we're taking on more risk, right? And yeah, sure. A big part of what I've come to learn as a part of this process, because of course, as I said, I like I learned a lot, is that the risk is not anywhere close to what people would imagine it to be, right? And so. I argue, I would like to think pretty convincingly that we aren't taking a disproportionate amount of risk, but we have an understanding of a population that other people simply don't have, right? And this kind of goes into like, just think about the average person who works at an investment bank on a structured credit desk. Do you think that person has any appreciation for what it means for a person like me to work my way through college? In my experience working on those desks, the answer is no. Right. And so we just kind of take that understanding. We marry that with the data that exists that tells that story and allows us to argue that point. And then, like, I would argue what we're doing is just simple arbitrage. Right. We have an understanding of a market that other people don't have. And we provide an opportunity for people to get a return that's commensurate with the risk that they're actually taking. Randy, I think that the way you framed that question was so interesting to me because only every once in a while do I see your 17 years in financial services as a as a legit banker come out. And I feel like that question that That's question it. was like, I'm a former banker. I couldn't help Sorry, it. I mean I, I want to let talk, that one I, go. Couldn't let it go. I, I want to go do down it. the path of I want to go down the path of talking about the risk metrics in the portfolio, but then we would have to put this all under, you know, do not disclose. We wouldn't be able to share anything because it's probably all proprietary. Well, so, so, so if I may, like I'll tell a story I had, you know, and I'll keep it as vague as I possibly can, right? But the bulk of the innovation that has happened in the student loan space, right, with all appropriate caveats up front, is in the super prime refi market, right? People like us who have gone to top schools of business, right, are offered lower rates because clearly the risk of default is that much less, right? And so I remember when I was starting the company, I was having a conversation with a person with experience in debt capital markets, we'll call it. And he was explaining me the challenge I would have. Like he said, when those companies were starting, right? And this is not my story. So if this is wrong, don't hold me personally responsible for it. But he said, like, what they did was go to, you know, the alums of those schools, 
who worked on those structured credit desks and say, don't you want to buy a book of loans of people who went to this particular MBA program or went to this particular school? Because you have an understanding of the fact that the risk is that much less, right? Mm. And that's true, right? And then he, he went on to say, the problem that you're going to have is that you'll have a book of loans of people that look like you, people who grew up working class on the South side of Chicago. And that person will have no basic understanding of what you're talking about, right? And the challenge is, is not the numbers, because the numbers are the numbers. The challenge is, are people going to think critically about those numbers? And are they going to accept the conclusions of those numbers when it comes down to it, right? And so a big part of the process for us has always been, in some respects, of not reject, like of not even accepting the premise that it's riskier, but of arguing the point that it's not in like showing our work. And as I kind of said previously, finding the people who are actually inclined to listen to that. Daniel, uh, one of the things that I've picked up in over the course of our conversations is that one of the interesting things about the space, unique things about the space, is the amount of data that you have access to, right? <laughs> Historical student loan data in terms of performance. So, first of all, that data is only as good as it's, as as it's relevant. And I think that there was in 2010 a very big change in the market. So, first question is, how do you take the data from pre 2010? What happened in 2010? And then from 2010 to today to design the business that you're building right now? Because I think yeah. this, is really, this is really interesting. So, so the change you're kind of talking about is uh, around that time in 2010, like, like the market structure changed. And that how it worked is that, to be simple about it, is that the federal student lending market basically subsidized for-profit actors to issue loans in which the government would give a guarantee to kind of prevent risk, right? And then they realized eventually that they're basically handing out a lot of money to companies for no good reason. And so eventually now, today, the bulk of loans are originated directly from the Department of Education, right? So what's interesting about that from a finance risk assessment perspective is that almost all of that information on how those loans are performed are public. And we have a very large amount of information that allows us to reconstruct what portfolios might look like under certain parameters if you have the presence of mind to parse through that data and you have an understanding of what it actually means, right? And so, you know, and that's before you kind of get to, you know, the additional research that a lot of institutions have done around, you know, who's on track to graduate from college, who's on track to find jobs, right? Like, you know, like, you know, like, like these aren't, you know, questions without answers, right? But the financial markets haven't caught up to that yet, right? And so because they're still predominantly looking at the income of the parents and the credit score of the individual, which is not necessarily wrong, as I always say, it's just incomplete. And so a big part of what's out there is a lot of data that tells us a really compelling story if we're inclined to go find it and to bring it to the people who guide these things. So, Daniel, quick question. I guess it has two parts. When we're thinking about sort of the unprecedented global pandemic that we've, you know, all been literally every person on the planet has been has been dealing with for the past several months. One, what do you think the impact of COVID is on some of those existing portfolios now? And what do you think that impact will look like going forward? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you always have to be careful about making predictions, right? And like a big part of what's going on now are a lot of things happening at once that are on their own hard to kind of parse out, right? But, you know, in, in terms of how to think about it in the context of student loans, like effectively what you're underwriting is 
the probability of a person graduating and the probability of that person finding a job that's, you know, pays them enough to pay back the debt, right? And so what's interesting about student loans is that, like, when you look at the loss curves, and I don't know how in the weeds your audience is going to be about this stuff, and so I'll try and say high level and push me down like, like further if you want. But, like, there's a very consistent pattern, which is unlike other types of consumer asset classes, right? In that you see default spike in the first three years after a person leaves school, whether it be because they drop out or go to graduation. And then over time, that rate goes down. And for particular segments, particularly people who have graduated, you see very large amounts of people rehabbing those loans, right? And so what's going on there in practice is that, you know, if I've graduated from Northwestern, I've changed the trajectory of my life dramatically, right? But I haven't changed it immediately. I still have to find that job. I still have to, you know, get my first apartment. I still got to buy suits. I still got to buy a car. I, like I still have to do all these things that are uh, part and parcel of becoming an adult. And if I don't, unless have you're a, an entrepreneur, you can you don't have to buy suits. I got to start a business. I got to incorporate in Delaware and do all that stuff, right? Which all comes with a cost. And if my parents can't write a check for $5,000, something has to give, right? And that's what we see, right? And, and particularly in communities of color. And so like, like when you talk about the stats around the default rates of African-Americans, right? When you dig deeper into that, you actually see for college graduates, they actually rehab those rates and have comparable long-term repayment rates as their counterparts. But what's happening is that they're being sh- stuffed into defaults for multiple reasons, at least which being like what happens in the labor market and why it's harder for an African-American to find a job vis-a-vis their well-connected white counterpart, right? So to, to say all of that and to look at COVID is that all of those things are going to be exasperated, right? Where people who had job offers like are going to see those job offers go away and, and those people are going to have to start their job hunt from scratch, which is going to introduce a, a, a lot more risk and variance into those loan performance, right? But I would argue, and I think the historical data shows this, is that over time, they'll end up in the same place, the question, or a comparable place, right? But the question is, what do they have to pay on that pathway to them, right? Are they paying a higher interest rate? Are they paying a lot of default collection fees as a part of that process? Are they wrecking their credit and now paying two points higher on the credit card? Or ten, like, I, like, I don't know any about credit cards, but like, are they paying a higher rate on a credit card vis-a-vis their peers, right? And right. that's where it gets kind of like, 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 like folded up, right? If I look 10 years in the future, I'm not worried about where that person from Northwestern is. I'm worried about the price they had to pay to get there. Right. Oh, so it's what, interesting. So I saw Dara digging up paper, which always scares me because that means she found something over there. Um, I did. What'd you, what'd you find, Dara? So I was, I was doing a fair amount of research uh, in preparation for our talk today. And this, what you just said sort of about the, it's going to take longer to find a job. What is really the, the cost of that time? And the three of us were talking earlier about sort of the, well, what, else happens when, you know, the economy is garbage as people start pursuing advanced degrees if they're coming out of undergrad. And an interesting statistic that I found in the course of my OCD research, because it's important to be self-aware and and know what you are, the American Council on Education um, has already studied this. And pre-COVID, 
pre the economy turning into garbage, the pursuit of graduate degrees is already significantly higher amongst minority students. And I think the statistic that the ACE found was that 57.2 of Black bachelor's degree graduates went on to pursue advanced degrees, while only 43.8% of white bachelor's uh, degree holders did the same. So this population that, you know, students of color that we're talking about now, they were already pursuing advanced degrees in much, in statistically significant percentages higher than white students. You add COVID into that, you add the cost of advanced degrees into that, you know, all of that sort of, I think, you know, multiplies and compounds the debt burden and the statistics around debt burden that we were talking about before. Does AM money work with graduate students and programs as well? Yeah, no. So like all of that is a great point, right? And like a big part of what's going into that is like just the need to do so, right? You know, like in Randy, I'm not sure like if you've had this experience, but you know, for me, people only listen to me when I tell them I have an MBA from the University of Chicago, right? Like the things I tell them don't matter until I tell them I have like a graduate degree. And by and large in the workforce, we know that to get promoted to comparable levels, people have to go to graduate school, right? So for me, graduate school is one of the few things from a risk perspective that keeps me up at night, right? Because in some cases, like getting an MBA from the University of Chicago, that's a great investment. Like, you know, if they double the price, it's probably still worth it. I haven't really run that math because I'm not that worried about it, right? Whereas you have a lot of graduate degrees, which allow you to take on a, like a, a much larger amount of debt that don't allow you to take a comparable step forward in your career, particularly in regards to like what you can earn, right? And so we have been working on and have funded a few people for graduate school. And a big part of how we think about that is that we took a, we take a much more critical lens on what is that school? What is that program? Where is that going to take you? And what is our comfort with the outcomes associated with that? You know, And in some cases, this is where the lines between for-profit and nonprofit actually blur a lot more, right? Like I took a very stark view on undergrad, like for for-profits, but there are some great nursing schools out there on a for-profit level on the graduate side that are very easy to get behind, right? Whereas you have some programs on the public side that, you know, taking out $150,000 to get a master's in, in social work, unless your parents are going to pay it off for you, never really makes a lot of sense, right? And so our model has been adapted to that. And we do look a lot more critically about what are those like specific outcomes for certain programs, simply because the risk for graduate school is, is that much greater as compared to undergrad. So it's interesting. It, it, so much, so, so many things change and so many things stay the same. You know, it's almost, it's almost as if you're taking a community banker perspective on students, just using technology to enhance your decisions and doing it on a platform that allows you to scale. Pretty awesome. It's basically what we, this, what we talk about fintechs being, right? A question for you, though, because I do think that there's a, there's a big change right now in terms of what's going on what's gone on in the, the life of a student six months ago versus today. And I have neighbors with kids going to college that are thinking about these, these issues. Talk me through how you, how you think about these issues as you prepare to lend to these uh, potential students and what you're, and I'm assuming you're studying the issue closely, what you're, what you're looking into and what you're watching. Yeah. So my upfront caveat in these conversations is that we always need to be very particular about who we're talking about. Right. 
And what is the context in which we're talking about them? Because your neighbors are not in the same boat as, you know, people from where I grew up, right? And so big part of who we built this for, like our kind of core customer, if you will, is like a person who's going to a regional state college, like the University of Illinois, Chicago, right? Predominantly lower to mid-income, you know, doesn't have the same amount of endowment and resources as like the flagship campus um, in Champaign, you know, but, you know, also has good outcomes, right? And so pre-COVID, what was going on is that a lot of people were asking them, like themselves some very hard questions, just like I was to my grandma and her to me at the time of, you know, can we afford to send you to college, right? And for the people who are on one side of the line, our product was built for them, right? Because hopefully it's a, it's a mechanism to help bridge that gap to get them like over the hump, right? And um, how I think about COVID is that there are going to be a lot more people on the other side of that line, right? And that you had a lot of people who last year were having that conversation and got to a point in which they said, we can afford this. We'll do it. Like we might have to sacrifice this or sacrifice that, but we'll make this happen. And tomorrow, when they have that exact same conversation, they won't be able to get to the same point, right? Because, you know, what we see is our students are working part-time, full-time jobs, and those jobs are gone, right? And so that, you know, $12 an hour that they were dependent upon to pay for that one class is they can't do it anymore, right? Two parents are in the same boat, right? Where like uh, a parent was making that sacrifice, but now they can't do it anymore, right? And so... What I see is that, you know, just as more people are going to try and go back, you're going to have that much more people who are going to be struggling to pay for it, you know? And of course, for the people in your neighborhood, yeah, they might go to Europe for a gap year, but that's not the reality of the vast majority of people that we're talking about, you know? No, and it wasn't my reality when I was growing up and looking at schools. So I get, I can, I can appreciate, and it's, it's, it's a different decision. In case there was any confusion, it was it was also not my reality when I was evaluating. Our truth. We all have to like walk our path, and that's totally fine. Well, Dara, I you know I'll, I'll turn it over to you, but I guess I'm curious. The one question I'd like to share with the group and get people's thoughts on is: so we had some pretty. We're talking about um, uh, com- communities that are underrepresented, uh, historically underrepresented in, in college. We're talking about uh, students of color that. We're trying to equip with access to education. What do you think has changed now versus four weeks ago? I mean, we were in the middle of a pandemic. That's what, that was big enough. But now I think we're dealing with some bigger issues. Um, when it comes to education, I mean, what can we do as, 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 as founders, as people that are engaging other leaders to help create change? So... A big thing for me in this process has always been to not necessarily always take the past of least resistance, right? So I talk about the example of the super prime segments, right? The people who do that are not wrong, right? You know, clearly the risk of top MBAs is not the same risk of the broader population of people who have a student loan, right? It's an objective fact and people have made themselves a lot of money and, like for themselves and for their customers, right? And how I like to think of what we do is that we take a view in that the same sort of opportunity exists for other people. And that's guided by research and hard data and things that we know to be true. But we're still taking that view. And so I think a big part of what it takes, particularly in times like these, 
is to like not just retreat into what we know and what we're comfortable with, but to be willing to take a view, right? And like the risk we take is that that like when I was in college and you looked at my income and you saw it was $15,000 from the military, right? The, like the view that we're taking now is that the income that I had when I graduated would be the view. And, and, and I think that's ultimately what we need people to do more of, right? Pre-COVID, but certainly post-COVID, right? And because the numbers are there, right? Like, you know, I'll send the data to anyone who wants to look at it. And the question becomes like, who has the presence of mind to take that view? And like, I would challenge everyone to think about like, what are we ignoring and what are the opportunities that exist because of our own blind spots? So I've actually, I've, I've hosted some pretty interesting guests on the show before that sort of talk about the implicit bias in, in data. And those are limitations that Anyone in the industry um, who's creating a product, who's trying to build an algorithm, who, you know, those, those are challenges. And the, da- the bias exists in the data because the bias exists in the world. And the data is a reflection of that. So I'd say, but that doesn't mean that there isn't anything that anyone can do about that. Acknowledging that and owning that fact is sort of like the first step. So I think as, as, as innovators, as disruptors, as entrepreneurs who want to make a difference in the world, just remember to think about as you're looking for your personal contribution and way you want to address this and simultaneously build a successful business, if you are going to leverage technology, if you are going to build your own algorithm, if you are going to leverage AI, if you are going to incorporate machine learning into a process of yours, you have to do that from a perspective of understanding that the data you're working with is likely biased. So make sure that the people in the room who are building your products are diverse. So like that diversity of thought and those perspectives and, and, and figuring out how, how to build around the garbage bias data that we're, that we're all sort of stuck with is critically important. Quite frankly, I think Apple and Goldman Sachs with the Apple card are going to be facing that harsh reality you know, with, with the New York regulators real soon. You know, technology is a wonderful thing, and but you have to be, there's an incredibly large responsibility that comes with the building of that technology and the data that, and the data that you put in, because the last thing anyone wants to do is more harm than good and start, you know, pretending to address these issues through the, through the leveraging of technology. And Daniel, it sounds like you're doing it the exact right way, because you do have this sort of implicit understanding of what the problem is, and you do have an incredibly unique perspective. Not every founder has that. So as a founder, if you know you don't have it, surround yourself with people that do. Yeah. And and like, I agree with all that, right? And like, I would say, and to echo what you just said, is that this is where people are critically important, right? Because like, no one wants to think that they're a bad idea, right? Or a bad person, I mean. But it's easier for some people versus others to do certain things, right? And like, like I think a, a part of what happened, particularly in this particular case, when it comes to data and how you look at it, it's like, who is comfortable with being extractive versus who isn't, right? And like, like for me, I draw a very strong line between how we think about things in the context of like, are we providing value add or are we being extractive? Right. And I think where a lot of the problems come in is where people are willing to blur the two or are willing to cross the line simply because that's quote unquote what you have to do. 
right? And so, like, a part of that is that, like, you know, like, like in this space, a, a lot of people might look at the data in aggregate and say, well, to make a profit, like, you have to charge like fifteen percent because that's quote unquote the risk, and that's why I push back so hard on Randy to say, Randy, that's not the risk, right? So here's the risk we're taking, but it takes the presence of mind to stand up for that, right? Because if everyone is telling you. Like, well, this is a risk. You got to charge this. You got to do that, right? It, it it takes another person to say, no, I'm not doing that, right? And well, of course, it's possible for people to do that in isolation from the communities and people who are affected. But in my case, I found, you know, I go back to like why to find people who wanted to believe the things or, or were inclined to believe the things I was selling. Like a trend line was those people had an understanding of what it was like to work through college, right? right? And so that is where I think having people whether it be founder or a strong staff that will hold you accountable for like how you draw those lines, I think is critically important in this. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, I, I just, I, all, every time in, in my instance in my career, every instance in my career where I was able to make a significant move or if I look back, make change, it was because I, did, I threw away what were the assumptions of the, of the equation because I realized that those things were wrong. And if I, if that had been done to me, I may not have had the opportunity to be at that seat. So listen, I could not be more thankful to um, both of you. I'll turn it over to Dara to wrap up, but Daniel, I knew this was going to be a really interesting conversation. You always over impress me every time in terms of how much more we get to. And Dara, I really wanted to say thanks as uh, on behalf of FinTechs. We really appreciate the opportunity to highlight one of what I think is going to be one of our shining stars in, in the Chicago market and or in the FinTech lending space broadly. He's to really, it means a lot to us to know we have partners like you that give us these platforms, especially in light of an environment where it's so important to create opportunities for people. This is what he, exactly what he's doing. All right. So Daniel, if people want to learn more about your company, what website do they visit? Chicagostudentloans.com. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much. Randy, you were an excellent guest host. Daniel, um, keep doing what you're doing. It's super important. And I appreciate you giving us your time today. Until next time, everyone. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure.